0: 84. Where will we see rain? We'll see some scattered showers in portions of the West. One one. We just had a, a plane crash into upper four of the World Trade Center, transmit a second alarm, and start relocating companies into the area. The World Trade said that tower number one is on fire. The whole outside of the building was just a huge explosion. We have a number of floors on fire. It looked like the plane was aiming towards the building. There's so many ways to remember 9-11. And uh, if you've been watching uh, TV this week, you've probably seen a lot of specials on. Today, I'm sure there's a ton of specials on it, being the 10-year anniversary. And many of us, uh, including myself, hasn't lived through a greater tragedy than 9-11. What has become of us Christians, Americans for that matter, since 9-11? This week, we've experienced uh, wildfires in our state, and our community, some of us in our homes and around our homes more tragedy, more devastation. Where do we stand as believers, 9 2011 Making that video and then watching the video reminds me of what I witnessed that day. I witnessed devastation, but the Bible says that that's nothing new. The Bible's filled with stories of people who have experienced devastation and trouble. The Hebrew children had their fiery furnace. Daniel had... The den of lions. Joseph was cast into prison. Paul was shipwrecked and beaten with stripes. Peter was sent to prison. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. James had his head cut off. David fled from Saul. And Samson had his eyes poked out. For what? Let's turn to John chapter 9 and see what happens when Jesus' disciples ask a similar question. For what? John 9.1 says this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In the first century, most people believed that all suffering was the result of sin. So the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned in this case, the blind man or his parents? There was even one school of thought that believed that you could sin before you're even born, like in your mother's womb, as crazy as that may sound. So then Jesus gives a typical Jesus answer. He gives his disciple an answer that totally messes up their theology and their belief system, and one that today is still hard for us to wrap our minds around. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of this world. Jesus then spits into the dirt and heals this man's eyes so that he can see the disciples probably stood around going, uh, I don't get it. We not necessarily growing up with that same belief system, uh, can see what Jesus is saying until we get to the part where it says uh, the idea that this man was born blind and on purpose. What? How is that? Jesus uses this opportunity to tell his disciples that we're not born perfect to our own standards. We are, however, born perfect to God's standards. You might say, my son was born with severe allergies and was not born perfect. God would disagree. He was born with allergies so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Our thinking doesn't always line up with the way God thinks. James, you mean to tell me that God purposefully allowed me to be born with this disability? Yes. He created you so that his work, his glory, could be manifest in your life. We have to remember that disabilities are not necessarily evil. Disabilities are the network through which God can work to accomplish his goals. Last month, I returned from Haiti, and Richard Lowe and I, we, uh, we, we witnessed firsthand the devastation, the, the poverty of of this set of people. These people are are grateful for each meal. They're grateful for their roof, whatever it's made of, to cover them at night. You say, how does a loving God let a, a, a people group live in such poverty? But then I could say also that how does a loving God allow me to grow up in a nation that's so wealthy that I have to actually want God I have to desire God long before I ever need God. Who then, my friend, has it worse? We are born with burdens in our life, and the whole point of all of this is to find God in the midst of these burdens. In studying this week, I came to realize just how self-righteous our thinking can be. How many of us on September 11th watched those buildings go down and thought, all those innocent people died. All those poor families have to suffer. How does a loving God allow suffering in their lives? And then I read in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 31 through 33, and it says this, 31, For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. I realized as I read this scripture that uh, about affliction and grief that it's talking about discipline. In these verses, it's explained that though man is disciplined for sin from God and and God brings grief into their life, he will also show compassion in their life because of how great his unfailing love is. And though God does bring grief, he's still a merciful God who with the same compassion doesn't want to have to bring grief and affliction to his children. He doesn't delight in your grief, but he does bring grief for your correction. Again, how many of us look at September 11th and uh, think of all those innocent people that died? Have we in our own self-righteousness not even thought for a second that we are not innocent? God literally has to come off of his mercy seat to allow grief and affliction. What is mercy? Not getting what we deserve is what mercy is. Not getting what we deserve. (laughs) We deserve September 11th every day with a country that doesn't put him first. We deserve September 11th every day because of our me first agenda and attitude. It is by his mercy that September 11th doesn't happen every day, that January 12th, 2010 in Haiti doesn't happen every day. It's by his mercy I don't like to think that September 11th happened because of our sin. And I don't, I don't know that it did happen that way. It's pretty uncomfortable thinking something like that. I do believe that September 11th happened as a result of a group of men who did sin and didn't know God. Either way, God was able to use that day to accomplish his goals and his glory. Paul said that death is a final enemy and that enemy is evil. So let's look at the story of Jesus and his disciples fighting that evil. Turn with me to John chapter 11, where we can read about Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and the death of a good friend. This is uh, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. We can liken this story to that of 9-11 and that prior to 9-11, that fateful day, we had become naive to evil. And that's the first point on your bulletin there. We should not become naive to evil, about evil. In other words, we shouldn't be unaware of evil. Christ is not naive about a terrible tragedy that happened that day. Now, some of us might think about him lingering and that that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when we consider God to be some sort of cosmic vending machine, put your quarters in and get an instant response. But I think that Jesus understood that tragedies and evil happen every day in a fallen world. And Americans tend not to think about evil. And the church is included in that. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, everything changed. We call it the fall of man. And at one time, Adam and Eve lived with an innocent obedience towards God. And then after the fall, man lived with a willful disobedience towards God. We're not sinners because Adam and Eve sinned. We sin out of our own will. We do, not, we do however, share in the, the outcome of Adam's fall. He had it good and lived in the Garden of Eden, a seemingly perfect place. And then after the fall, God cursed the ground and forbid him from entering the garden. Before 9-11, I believe our naivete contributed to a forgetfulness that the fall introduced collateral damage into creation that continues with us today. And it leaves no one untouched. Our church should understand that walking with God does not make you immune to to death or the presence of evil. In fact, it probably makes you a target. No longer invulnerable, we see evil requires no bombs or armies and now employs jetliners and box cutters. The church, after 9-11, ought to mature in recognizing the existence of evil and the warlike state of evil and no longer be so naive. Now, We're going to skip to uh, to verse 11 in the same chapter of 11. Now, where it's been two days since Jesus was sent word about Lazarus. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake... I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So here we are with a familiar story of the death of a loved one. In fact, John records five times in this book alone that he loves, that Jesus loves Lazarus. John made it very clear that Lazarus wasn't just a a casual acquaintance, but he was actually a dear friend of Jesus. We read that Jesus lingers on with his business and, and doesn't immediately attend to this dear friend. It's sort of like Jesus comes to town to heal Lazarus, but ends up staying at Holiday Inn across town on his promotional tour. and doesn't, doesn't seem to get there fast enough. He doesn't attend to his, to his dying or dead friend quick enough. When it mattered most. And we pick back up in verse 17, where the Bible says that Jesus finally made it to the home four days after Lazarus had passed away. This is significant because in that day, the popular rabbinical folklore would have you believe that when a body laid in a tomb for three days, the spirit or the soul would hover above and there was an opportunity perhaps for a miracle or a resurrection or a coming back. But after the third day, the soul departed and the spirit departed and they would go back to the Jews and they would change into sackcloth and ashes and the weeping would change and there would be no more hope. And then Christ arrives on the fourth day. After all of that, no more hope. The word says that when Jesus arrives, Martha comes out to where Jesus is at. And she says, Had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary had stayed back because of her grief, but Martha calls for her and says, Come out here. And she comes out to where Jesus is at and falls down at his feet. And basically says the same thing. Had you been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And it says in verse 33 that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come with her, he was deeply moved and troubled. Not only should we not be naive towards evil, but we should not be numb towards it either. That's the second point on your. We should not be numb to evil. In other words, we shouldn't be indifferent to evil. If you look at this passage here, when it says that Christ was deeply troubled, that he was moved, the Greek word for this is, uh, is the same as a horse with nostrils that are flaring with rage. Christ sees the death of Lazarus as a great moral injustice. It's not the way the world was supposed to be. Christ is neither naive about evil nor numb towards it. You see, before 9-11, Americans became numb to evil. We had seen or heard about a number of evil things going on in, in countries like Rwanda, Congo, Angola, Bosnia, Chesnia, Sudan, Sri Lanka, Kosovo, East Timor, Sierra Leone. And as a group, we became numb to the devastation going on in the world around us. Things were, ge- were going pretty well for us. Stock prices were up. Taxes were low. And it was a sunny Tuesday. God gave us all a set of glasses When we came to know Christ. He gave us a pair of bifocals. And what enraged Jesus was that we were supposed to be. Looking through those bifocals. And not with our own understanding. The bifocals have creation on the top half. This is how life is supposed to be. How it was designed to be. And the bottom half is the fall. Through this part of the lens we see how things actually are. We're supposed to be realist. And see through both sides of the lens. Knowing the way it should be, and then it not ending up that way ought to enrage us like Christ was, en- was enraged. Jesus was outraged at evil, and we should share in that outrage. We shouldn't be so numb that we see a tragedy like 9-11 or an earthquake in Haiti and then turn to our spouse and say, hmm, what's for dinner? Third point on your uh, bulletin says this. We should be a hopeful people not an optimistic people. The early church was a hopeful people, not an optimistic people. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Optimistic comes from the word optic, which means rosy or cheery outlook. James said in James chapter four, you don't even know what your life is gonna be like tomorrow. You don't even know what your life is gonna be like in the next five minutes. The problem with optimism is that it doesn't pay attention to the truth. It neglects, evil and paints a rosy picture about how life is going to turn out before 9 11 we thought nothing would ever happen to us and then it did further along in john chapter 11 jesus calls mary and martha to have place their hope in him not in endless miracles not in bread or the resurrection or anything else it, it doesn't look like the early church and the early believers had a rosy optimistic outlook Instead, they had hope, and because their hope was in him, they challenged the evil and the errors and the wrong propagated by the Roman Empire. Yes, people were thrown to lions as a result, and they were devoured. Yes, the Appian Way, the infamous road in in Rome, ancient Rome, was lit by burning impaled bodies of those who professed allegiance to Christ, but their hope never wavered. The end of the story with Jesus and Lazarus comes down to this. Jesus finally gets to Lazarus' Lazarus's stench-filled tomb. And he prays in front of everybody. And he prays a thanks to God. He thanks God for, for, uh, for hearing him. And for everybody around him to hear him. And then he calls out to, uh, to Lazarus to come out of his tomb. That he was encased in. And Lazarus comes out after being dead for four days. And uh, of course he smells horrible. The Bible doesn't say that sin caused Lazarus to be sick. And it doesn't say that God caused it either. It does however say that sickness existed. In order for God's son to be glorified through the healing. Regardless of how the sickness came about. God was in control the whole time. And was able to accomplish his goal. My challenge for you today is twofold. First, we must take the advice of the Jews after the Holocaust and never forget. We should not forget what happened on 9-11. Second, we as a church should never forget that as believers in Christ, we are not out of harm's way. We are a target for evil. So I'm going to read you this uh, this last verse in 1 Peter 5. It goes, uh, we'll start in verse 8 here control yourselves be on your guard your enemy the devil is like a roaring lion he prowls around looking for someone to chew up and swallow stand up to him stand firm in what you believe all over the world you know that your brothers and sisters are going through the same kind of suffering god always gives you all the grace you need so you will only have to suffer for a little while then god himself will build you up again he will make you strong and steady He's chosen you to share in his eternal glory because you belong to Christ. Given the power forever and ever. Amen. Last year, when uh when we were fixing to go to to Haiti, uh, those of you that were in that group, Doug had gone to uh to a, a wedding in Austin, and it kind of left me here to to get all the everything set up and uh, whatever was left and get Chad set up to go with us too. And, and I remember Thursday night, Chad and I had gone up to Dallas cause we we're going to fly out the next morning. Was it Thursday night? Friday, night? Friday night. I'm sorry. Friday night. We'd gone up and, uh, I, I started getting phone calls and text messages from various people that were afraid of what was, go- what was going to happen in Haiti. And, uh, it was it was kind of, it, people were scared because they were getting on to to different websites and and people were were kind of, I guess the what is it, what group was it that that said that? Uh, I can't think of what the group is that that said don't go to Haiti. There's some some website official website that says don't go to Haiti, Americans. You know, there's people killing each other outside of the airport, and it's dangerous and you know, don't go, you know, this, it's it's not for you. And, uh, and this is, you know, a government website telling us not to go. And somebody had clicked onto that and uh, began, what's that? Department of State, Department of State th- telling you not to go. So uh, somebody had clicked on that on Friday and began getting scared and getting nervous inside. And people's families were telling them, you know, you really shouldn't go and they 're calling me and uh, scared and i i I guess i had a I had a confidence because I know that bad things happen like nine eleven, but I know a God that is in control all the time, that his goals are going to be accomplished no matter what, and that if I am called, and if you are called to go somewhere that 's dangerous to go into where devastation is, where tragedy has happened, you need to go you need to to be a part of that because you are part of that network that God is going to use jesus and in, and in, uh, in John eleven you know was was used by God when Lazarus was sick and he 's dying. It was, it was on purpose for God to accomplish something. It says for the glory of God and for his son to be glorified. So the danger that comes along with going to Haiti, that's just part of it. We're here to accomplish God's will above all things. And it's hard because we've grown up in such a wealthy nation where we're taken care of and, you know, before I I said that we live in such a wealthy nation that we have to want God and desire God long before we need Him. You go to Haiti and you'll see that real quickly. You'll see that, Richard. He's shaking his head. We don't need God like they need God. We have to want God and desire God. That's pretty much the sermon for today, but I wanted... I wanted to share that with you guys a little extra because I think we need to come out of ourselves. We need to step out of our own selfishness and, and be open and willing to go where God has us. This past week, the wildfires, a number of people stepped up to help. That's accomplishing God's will. Jesus, when he was praying right before he raises Lazarus up, he thanks God for, uh, for being heard, that God hears him and that everyone around him hears it. It's the same thing when you step up to feed the firemen that are working on these wildfires around you. When you're stepping up to, to do something like that, people are hearing that. People are seeing that and you're actually being heard just like Jesus is thanking God for. You're accomplishing God's will not to be seen, not to be heard, but that's what happens. You're actually spreading God's Word. You're actually spreading. Uh, We've been talking, the youth have been talking about the the Beatitudes, and one of the Beatitudes is, uh, blessed are the peacemakers. And when you break down uh, what a peacemaker is, peace in Hebrew is shalom. Peacemakers, they're not just people that just sit back and they're quiet. You know, they just sit back and and, you know, don't say a whole lot. You, we think of that as being peaceful. But they're they're standing up for peace. Feeding those firemen and uh, going to Haiti to help other people. Uh, going to soup kitchens. Whatever that you happen to do that helps people. That's being a peacemaker. That's setting peace in this world. And that's what God's calling us to do. And the Beatitudes, a Beatitude is a blessing. Blessed are those that are peacemakers. Gary, what's the end of that? for they will become children of God. Right on. Gary's memorized all the, all the uh, Beatitudes. Um, you've all received a registration card today. If you would, fill that out so that we have a record of your attendance. And then on the back of it, um, I would like for you to do this. Uh, I gave you three things that we shouldn't be after witnessing 9-11. We shouldn't be naive. We shouldn't be numb. And we shouldn't be optimistic, but we should rather be hopeful. Write down which one of these three areas, if not all three, maybe none of them, that you you feel like maybe has started to creep back into your, to your, your psyche. Creep back into you since in these past 10 years. Uh, which one of these areas are you struggling with now? Write that down. And if you have a prayer request, write that down. We, uh, we always pray over Uh, The prayer requests that are on the back of the registration card.